Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This room is amazing. I feel like I'm inside your brain in this room. Well, <laughs> thanks, I guess. Welcome to Trash in the Attic, a podcast about stuff. What have you got hiding in your loft? I'm Charlie Gunn and each week I ask a musician to have a rummage through their attic to find some hidden gems from their past. Be it an old tour poster or a work of art, we hear the stories behind these lost items. This week's episode is with Izzy B. Phillips, ferocious front person to Brighton indie band Black Honey. This episode was recorded at our home in Sussex just before lockdown. tell everyone where we are so this room used to be the dining room of my mum's house and i basically moved in really gradually this is a piano here i can't really play it it's really out of tune but it sounds amazing right it does um this was like my family piano when i was a kid it was always in the dining room so this was like a good way of me like infiltrating into the room given this organ over here I would play it but it's not plugged in that is a beautiful old looking organ it honestly it's amazing and the bass has little bass notes on the bottom which um, organ players play with their feet and it it sounds I used to record all of my like sub bass sounds through like miking up the organ and playing it through there in this room yeah wow obviously I'd like edit it afterwards and stuff but if you record just like from the speaker in there it just sounds really authentic in 70s I think it's an original like 70s organ and it has like cool little jazz drum beats that you can put on it yeah it's beautiful so how long has your mum lived here um so me and mum moved in here when i was like 17 15 16 maybe it's a happy house to me does it feel like home yeah oh my god like, i love it here like it's also really cool that you can just like come and dig your mum's dining room and put record players and guitars on the walls there's paintings everywhere there's canvases there's fan art there's guitars there's plants there's disco balls Wes Anderson books everything so we're going to go through some of your most prized possessions or things that have been really important to you in some way so I'm looking right now at a pink wig on a bust what can you tell me about that wig so this wig is a quite a sentimental one for me um we did this video called i don't have one love where we went to my friend diego owns this like selection of pink hotels in ibiza it's absolutely mental a selection of hotels literally he owns like it's called like concept groups and each hotel is like they're all pink pastel 1950s motel vibe and um he's a big fan of rock and roll he came to see us at ibiza rocks that we played like a few years ago and was like, guys, you've got to come come stay in my hotels. And we were like, cool, yeah. Like He loves retro. He loves like all of the same stuff that I love. He collects amazing vintage paraphernalia. So he invited us to come over and we were like, dude, can we shoot a video? And he's like, yeah, sure. So we just turn up and we're like, what, what would look really good with this pink hotel? I know, a massive pink beehive. <laughs> And honestly, like, people look at that video now and it's, it's called I Don't Everyone Love and they, it's, like, very Wes Anderson-style themed and it's very, like, symmetrical and you've got poolside shots and, like, extra characters and 
and loads of light reflectors and it looks like we've spent like loads of money but literally it was just like us turning up with that wig and jumping in a pool in our mate's hotel in Ibiza which now thinking about it kind of what it's all about absolutely you and wigs have got a, a solid bond um was that the first time you kind of became a wig fan wigs have been a really exciting part of my black honey experience because i feel like i live in my head in these sort of characters what's like the housewife that smoked too many cigarettes and starts drinking gin at 3 p.m what what hair has she got and how can i transform into being her and then and then i'm like well what's it like being a 15 year old girl what's it like being a a 30 year old drug dealer in American 1970s or like these are the kind of characters that I like build in my head so the wigs are have become a transformative experience for me to become an extension of myself there was a really interesting quote that I read the other day that was disguise is only a reflection of yourself I'm not sure if that was the exact quote but basically like anyone that's trying to disguise themselves are actually expressing their inner self because the choices that you make in your disguise reflect your inner personal need to cover something or become something. I wear wigs at festivals and people are like, you wear a wig? You're like, yeah, and they're like, why? (laughs) Honestly, it's a great feeling. You feel like somebody else. When you're writing, you're obviously sort of writing from within you but where where does the characters come from do they come out when you're performing and when you're doing music videos or is it from the inception point of a song you're kind of already thinking in that person's mindset i think when i'm writing it is literally just me in like my purest self um it's really interesting i've never really thought about it like maybe some people express the character that's in their mind I would say that I'm expressing exactly how I feel, but I dress it up like it's somebody else. But even then... Is that a defence mechanism? Maybe. Like, now now you say it, I wonder, like... my I'm just very obsessed with, like, caricatures and, like, films and stuff like that. And so, like, it's hard to think that, like, Tarantino would, like, write the films that he's written and directed without reflecting his own personality in the characters. You know, I'm not like Nick Cave or like someone that writes from like an artistic standpoint of another person's perspective, which I'm sure like one day maybe I could do, but I I try writing from anyone else's perspective and it still sounds like me. I try writing songs for other people and it still sounds like me. Like I can't not sound like me. So I think there's this quote about um I think it's Jack White and it's it was like people said when the white shops came out it was like simultaneously the fakest and the most sincere thing that they'd ever seen at the same time and like that for me like really resonates because to make that honey for me I was like I want to be as sincere as I can as raw emotionally as I can be and be like really on the nose with how I feel and then like have it dressed into this like artificial kind of Wes Anderson weird cinemascape where it can exist in its own world and the fans have really got on board with that, I think. Like, all yeah. the aesthetic around the band and, like, your beautiful wig. <laughs> and, like, it's, yeah, talking about fa- your fans particularly, I think, are just 
so into it and another thing we've got in the room is some beautiful beautiful fan art which it's it's amazing but like what is it like to be given that stuff it's weird because when you say i i make i, I don't think i think about it enough I, maybe i don't appreciate it enough it's hard i find a disassociation between like the person that everyone thinks i can be for them and the person i actually am yeah, um, okay. So when I see this, I'm like, this is a gift to the invention of me rather than like actually me, because no one would really gift the actual me because like the actual me is completely dysfunctional. But at the same time, I guess I put them up in this room because they're there to like remind us that we've made something valuable for people that help them with their lives, and that's why I do music, I guess. The fact that everyone's so creative and has so much to give back is insane. Like I didn't. When you when you start writing music, you never expect like people are gonna gift you back and give back to you in ways that you n- never even imagine. Like the art that they put, give you and the love, the passion and the openness and the honesty. I can't compare it to any feeling in the world. I think it must be mad when someone hands you a piece of art if you sort of stop and imagine the person in their bedroom thinking about your band and taking the time to sit down and draw a beautiful picture of you or do a screen print of you or paint I mean I'm look I'm looking at all of these things right now paint a beautiful little oil canvas of your face and just how much your music and you as a person must be resonating with them for them to take the time to do that yeah fuck I guess, like, I identify with the feeling of being in your bedroom listening to music. But uh, maybe I was really late to the pipe, but I never thought, oh, what I'll do is I'll paint a picture of Kirk Bain <laughs> and then I'll yeah. turn up at his gig and I'll give it to him. But maybe that's, like, that we live in this very tangible world where, like, fans can gift you stuff and you can post about it on the internet immediately and they get that like public gratification that you've built that relationship with them but then saying that we were in a studio the other day and we found this fan letter that was there and I don't want to say who it was for but it was it was like a site it was for someone very big a female icon and uh, someone you you found it yeah it was published and printed on the wall yeah we found so I didn't find it I was working with a producer who found it in the bin of a studio that he was working in that day and it was like a, it was a great it was a great fan letter it started off very like legit it was like um, I love you then it kind of got a bit weirder and went into like I think that we would be friends and then it went into why don't you ever reply to me I love you I will give you everything Please is, run away with me. <laughs> that is the definition of Stan from Eminem Stan. That is Stan. Maybe yeah. it was Stan. <laughs> Maybe it was Stan. Stan, if you're out there. <laughs> we found your letter. We know you're still active. <laughs> Just back down now, okay? <laughs> Stan's been after a lot of artists recently, I've seen. <laughs> He's, He's yeah. on the Twitter. <laughs> He's in full force. Um, no, but that's interesting what you said about the way that fandom right now... Um, and the kind of interaction with fans so you you pay them back by sharing something on Instagram and that's kind of what they're after and it's interesting how that must have evolved because in the past before before the internet um, 
if somebody gives you a piece of art and then you have that interaction with them, it's more like a transaction. Like you give them a thing. So I feel like I want to post because I want to give them back more because I always feel like they're giving me more than I've given them. Which... Well, I don't think they would see it that way. No, but from an artist's perspective, it's like, what the hell have I done to deserve someone's devout lifelong love? And almost a bit imposter syndrome, I, I think is the word. I'm a loser who can't get out of bed on time, can't be, can't keep a job. <laughs> so I, I write songs in my pants because I couldn't deal with my feelings. And then that, that's what's, it's a, it's a head fuck. To where you can give back, you do. What's been your most meaningful fan interaction? Oh, or a, a few of. A few of. There's a there's a couple that come to mind. There's a really great kid from Brighton called Ella, and who who I adore. And she um, just like the perfect kid. So different. So special so unusual and I feel like so honoured to even be part of someone's like teenage years it's hard to call them fans when you know when you know them personally by this point it's a very mutual exchange when you're in a room like you are a green door store gig like I feel that the people in that room gave as much as I could give back and the band could give back where it feels so mutual it feels really weird to be like fans my fans yeah it makes them removed from you somehow or that you're above them yeah there's a but yeah when they're like they're the thing that makes you what you are and black honey wouldn't be black honey without a community of people who gave a shit and it's very valuable but and it can be very removing until you go out on tour and then you can touch everybody and cuddle them and see them in real life and then tell you their whole life stories and some of those are crazy. Like there was some. There's a there's a woman that I know, and I won't name her. She like had cancer and had like the most horrendous life, and she she recovered from cancer. She was studying, I think she was like in medicine or doing something crazy, and she recovered from cancer, and then decided that what she was gonna do was just like go and watch gigs. She was like, that's all I want to do, and she used to come into the vintage shop when I worked there, and I made friends with her there, and then she came to every gig, and for the whole journey, she's been like this absolute beacon of like no fucks given like I look up to her I'm like if I can be like you going to every gig when I've like survived cancer I've done my job like I've made it like she's to me she's a hero or like we've got this um, a really sad story of like a family in the Netherlands like this guy called Tony he passed away he was like a super fan and he was there like from day one you know he was there like you guys are gonna be massive like bought every record bought every seven inch we put out was there every gig with maybe four people there and he passed away and his whole family came to our gig and they, they still come and they message us now and they're like can we come on guest list to your shows and we're like yes oh my god we wow. put like 30 people on every parody so show that we play ever because the whole family come down and they do it as like a memoriam to him and it's really really emotional when the, when they come up and they hug you and they say like you don't know how much you meant to him your song has been played at his funeral that's a big thing to try and get your head around so the, the easiest way is like a disassociation almost with that because I can't believe that I'm that person like I didn't know that I don't know the person that they think that that is so I'm like separate from it in some way yeah, is that how you deal with it? Because I think that so. stuff is weighty. I think so. I, I've heard from other bands and stuff that it's quite rare to have like this kind of culty level 
so early on like we're not we're not you know we're not selling out massive stadiums or anything like that we're not doing massive shit we can be doing so much more around the world or internationally or on an award-winning level or anything we're not doing any of that but the people who we are touching we are touching so intimately that they like come to our shows every day they dress like us they buy every piece of merch they like write us letters they paint paintings and people are like wow your fans are like a cult and, and as soon as I heard the word cult, I was like, this sounds great. <laughs> I'd love to be in a cult of weirdos. Like, I want that. Yeah, it's nice. It seems like they inspire you as much as you inspire them. So, I'm looking around the room and I see in the corner, slightly alarming, a bright pink coffin. Is there anyone in that coffin? <laughs> I don't know. Do you want to go and have a look? <laughs> Possibly not. Talk to me about the coffin. So there's no one in the coffin today. So this is a it's a pink coffin. It's real. Just claimer. Everyone's like, how did you get that? And you're like, well, it's real. We just contacted a a funeral parlor and said, what's the cheapest pink coffin that you can do? I think it was like two hundred quid. Oh wow, that is quite affordable. I, I do think so, but also by the same token, I've had it for four years, and I'm like, I plan on dying in this coffin. Like since having it, I'm like, it would be so excellent. If I died in this coffin. Yeah. But since having it, we've had to renail the lid, the glue's come off, the kernels are plastic, which, like, that can't be good for an incinerator or for, like, the earth. True. There's a lot of, there's a lot of problems about this pink coffin. I feel like these are things that, um, as the typical user of a coffin, you would never have to think about. 250 quid. If I was paying that money for a coffin... Like, the paint job would be a bit more legit. Maybe the handles wouldn't be made of plastic. I don't know. I feel like the, the funeral parlour are definitely taking the biggest cut of the investment here. I'm like, it's wood and some plastic. Yeah, that's, yeah, interesting. Like, I reckon I can make you a coffin that costs less than 50 quid to make. Okay, well, one day I might take you up on that. Okay. <laughs> Deal. Um, <laughs> we haven't talked about why you have the coffin, Okay, so let's get to that. So we had a music video for this song called Dig a while ago. And the idea is that I get poisoned Romeo and Juliet style and I'm like dead and then I come and like drink a special potion and I get awoken from the dead by my girlfriends and it's all this big feminism story about empowerment for women. So we had this for this video, we spent £250 on it. My mum, I'm sorry mum, we have kept a coffin in the garage for two years. It's got like a lovely satin white lining, it's pink, it looks really glam, like it's pretty bougie like... If, like, Paris Hilton was buried in this coffin, you wouldn't be shocked. You know, it looks great. It's a beautiful coffin, for sure. Would you like to be buried in my coffin? I mean, yeah, it's really nice. And I think, you know, I I, I see your point about it being 250 quid and it's it's not very robust, but it looks great. And I think I would be very comfy in it. Yeah, you would be comfy. Especially with the satin lining, which, by the way, we put in. So when we got oh. it, it was almost like a bin liner sheet was sort of stapled into it so imagining that like so that when your body like biodegrades it doesn't go into like a satin lining like how all the movies make out it's just like in a plastic carrier bag oh right god that's depressing isn't it yeah i mean i've promised myself that if there's anything i'll do is i really want an open casket in my funeral and i want a photo shoot like in that coffin imagine it'd be wild it would be great in one of your beautiful wigs Imagine! Perfect. <gasps> yeah, I can picture it almost. It'd be that's, so that's good. It's dark it, to say that. But. Yeah. You can, you're invited. Like, you're 100% Thank invited. Thank you. As long as you write about it, you can write my obituary. <laughs> okay. Done deal. 
another thing that you have brilliantly discovered uh, from the loft is your box of journals. So you've been a keen journaler. Journaler? Is that the is word? Is that a word? We'll, we'll go with it. For your whole life. Is yeah. that right? Well, when did you start journaling? I was maybe 13, teenager. So not my whole life, but the bits that are worth reporting on, I guess. The angst-filled bits. The angst-filled bits, the drama. What made you start writing a diary so i had like really bad nightmares when i was a kid and i was sent to like a doctor um and they had like really bad um daytime hallucinations from like exhaustion which turned out to be like so normal and everyone has them on some level but uh at the time i was obviously treated or felt like i was going absolutely insane was the exhaustion caused by the nightmares i don't know i i'm not exactly sure but when I had ADHD, but and also so in that process diagnosed with ADHD, and they didn't, I can't remember the exact details of it, but basically like nightmares and like entry level hallucinations and depression can all be linked heavily with someone who suffers from ADHD. So in the sort of umbrella of it all, through the hallucinations, I found my diagnosis, then got medicated, and then all of the rest of my journey started. It wasn't the end of my journey. I had a really hard time with uh, the drugs that they put me on. Ritalin is like a fucking pack horse. Like, I had uh, like a version of it, I can't remember what it's called, but it like releases three times the amount of a normal Ritalin amount, but across the whole day it's in this massive horse pill, it's like a waxy pill. It made everything worse and then they put my Ritalin, which is like more of like a four hour thing, it could get through school, it could like focus. But basically throughout that whole process they made me take a dream diary. That was like how to process a lot of my emotions and go to therapy and stuff. And so I kept, it started as a dream journal and then I just like enjoyed writing I liked writing poems or like things that I was flicking through on MTV or as a kid and that was kind of like my outlet and then I was really good at drawing and I liked drawing so between all of it became like this happy magical special safe place where I could create and then I started to write songs and then I started to like play guitar and use the journals and be like oh I can make that into a lyric or what melody could fit with that and so my whole the whole of songwriting for me was self it was self-help what my version of therapy that i went through wasn't it was very like psychiatric we're gonna brain scan you and find out what brain parts are wrong and more medical very medical and very like prescriptive and that must have been quite scary as a young teenager to have all these people sort of trying to diagnose some kind of quote-unquote issue with your brain yeah no I mean I say it I I can't remember loads of the sessions I guess you just forget them or you black them out over years or you just kind of put them in the back of your mind I don't I wonder if that was just like a really big part of me forming me was like this sort of I was I was seeing doctors and junked up on pills before I could drive a car or leave the house or Mm. do anything so I've got like a really built some sense of self from very young. I knew like who I was, what made me tick. And I was like forced to analyze my own thoughts. And so like, in a way I feel 
sort of privileged for that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are in their late 30s before they embark on any kind of form of self-analysis and, yeah, any kind of self-reflection is a positive thing. Uh, Do you ever go back and read the old ones? I mean, I did once. It was unbearable, like... I did it just because I really wanted to find out like about the poems I was writing when I was younger and I thought, like, oh, that can make cool songwriting material. Ended up like putting it together in like, this kind of sketch of a book that I want to do one day that will be like a poetry book. Wow. Um, which could be really cool, but I'm kind of waiting for the right time to do it. But even even rereading that, I mean, it was funny because my manager came around and he was sort of reading my like heartbroken boy poems in his voice. Was it hard to read them or uncomfortable to read them because as most people I imagine if you read shit that you've written when you're 12, 13 then it's just cringy or was it upsetting because it was a kind of different time of your life? It's definitely a mix of the two like it would be funny because it would cut from being like something very heavy and actually substantial to like something that is like such a teenage problem that I'm like moaning about and I just go from sounding like prolific sort of writer in the making to like a moany teenager <laughs> but I, I do I guess I don't think I'm self-involved enough to care to go through it or like I've never I never make it to to go and review I can maybe see myself when I'm like 80 it's a rainy day I'm gonna try and reread whatever nonsense I've put into them then but for now it's just like a weird little beautiful treasure trove that I'll try and keep as far away from my loved ones as possible. <laughs> Are you still writing journals now? I do, but it's it's stressful and it's changed. Like, I kind of... I resent the internet. I resent the immediacy culture of the world that we live in now. I, I feel like nothing is really that private and you're sort of expected to express your like inner feelings more at the same time as show everyone what you've had for breakfast that day. So I do, I, when I write in my journal, it's because it's only because I'm writing songs so much that I'm writing every thought down every day that will get incarnated or reinvented into a poem or a song or be part of an idea that I'm building. I kind of miss the fact that I just wrote for me then. I didn't write because I was a, a songwriter then. I wrote because I had to survive and that's the method that I learned and I knew could help me cope with myself. Because now it's like, oh, I've written two lines. What's the song that I'm going to make out of it? Oh, right, I've got a really good hook that'll go with that. I'm like, well, that's how I feel. But is that going to sound like a good chorus? Hopefully I'll I'll get back to that. Part of me is scared of getting to that place because actually I'm very happy and I'm striving and I feel like this, like, boss bitch that can just, like, deliver a song and knows how to still tap into that person of me. But I miss the person in me that, like literally had to clutch to a guitar to survive I think there's a purity of thought when you're young that you can't ever get back but almost you know as life becomes more and more interesting and and so many you know you have so many experiences and you see things in different ways like that kind of process can just become more rich and and interesting and whilst nostalgia is a wonderful thing like what you're doing now is arguably more meaningful and more valuable to like so many people. Talk to me about this broken guitar that I can see here. 
it's the guitar that you get when you're 12 and it's a nylon string which means it's a classical guitar um it's really small it's like three-quarter body um it's got like a three-quarter neck as well and it basically like if you were five and you were learning to play like your first ever chord this is the guitar that you would have you'd have bought which doesn't sound like something that an indie band person would like or maybe, maybe it does i don't know for me this guitar was super important i loved it so much because the frets were so small that i could be as lazy as hell with my chords which is like a joy until you then have to get into you know, and play a real guitar again which is still a really easy guitar to play but for some reason your fingers are now really lazy because you've like trained them to play the smallest guitar in the world um and you can chuck it in your backpack i can carry this guitar like in hand luggage on an airplane i think there's so much of a bravado around the gear that you have and the stuff that you work on being like oh i've got this like technical fancy button and blah 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 and i feel like my process as a writer has always been like sort of like almost like a jack white philosophy like strip everything away do you remember the moment when you were in the charity shop with your mum yeah what was it like mum was like don't buy it you don't need another guitar (laughs) (laughs) i just remember being like this is the guitar i was like i I knew i was looking for a nylon string because my mate christian from the witches had a nylon string similar but his was more like vintage and a bit of a bigger body and i knew that nylon sounded really cool and you could kind of do that like flamenco sounding thing or whatever um and I just loved how they sounded and how they felt and there was something really fun and exciting about it. And so when I saw one in a charity shop, I was like, well, why the hell wouldn't I? This is genius. And, you know, I like, I flew to, uh, I think it was like Milan or something to to go and meet our tour bus for Royal Blood and I had it in my tote bag. <laughs> like, this, it's just like, that's a pleasure for me. I can, it, we chucked it in the back of every van and then it eventually broke getting back to the real story how did it break? we did a hefty load of touring it was really really hot it was in amongst the heat wave I don't know if anyone remembers but it was like 45 degrees hot this summer especially in Paris yeah it was unbearably hot and in so many ways what a brilliant festival season because of it but you could have taken it down we did Rock Rata which was like in Belgium and it was backstage leaning on a table in a dressing room which was basically a 10 in 45 degree heat with no air conditioning and the guitar just like very slowly slid off the table and hit the floor at which point the head just flopped off i burst into tears we had about 10 minutes before stage time i was absolutely devastated and (gasps) still in that mode of like someone someone there's a guitar tech around here that can fix it please no everyone was like no girl like buy a, buy a new guitar like that guitar's worth like 30 quid like why are you worried I was like you don't understand how many songs I've written on this guitar oh that's sad yeah it was really sad R.I.P. beautiful guitar but I see next to it it's got a little twin it does have a twin I, and I feel bad it's like when your dog dies and you buy the same breed of dog <laughs> so um Maybe I can give it a little strum. See, this one that has a head on it, so we can like appreciate the. Yeah, it, it is probably completely out of tune. It's probably been chucked in the back of the van. I mean, that's like that could have been way worse tune, right? Oh, that one's a bit shapy. I know there's something like. I didn't when you hear that. You just like, I want to write a song. Do you want to write a song? Yes, I want to write a song. 
I had something really raw and like shit about it that makes me feel excited. They must have like I always think this about bands that have put out their first album. I mean, it's not an original thought because everybody talks about the difficult second album where you've had all this time like from the first moment that you picked up an instrument to sort of make these songs and craft these things and there's been no pressure and then suddenly songwriting is a different thing because you're making an album like have you felt that going I mean you you guys have just laid down your second album right yeah how's how's the process been and how much has has this guy fed into it I'm pointing at the guitar yeah so much like as far as like the tricky second album goes i'd describe this as like the joyous second album wonderful maybe people maybe we had our second album like in album one we had like all of the traumatic uh what are we doing let's try this okay that feels fun fuck it but for second album man like i love what we've made like i can't you have to make the album that if if no one was listening if no one cared what would you make if you had to write the journal entry that no one read, what would you write? That's like the ultimate question of all art. That's boiling them down to the heart. And must I think it must be hard to not overthink it though. Yeah, no, like I think at this point I'm like, great, we can make anything. Like if we make a pop record, it doesn't matter. If we make a rap record, maybe that could happen. If we made anything, I feel like it feel like in this really weird privileged position where I'm like, yeah, I'm like quite happy to be like, cool. Now I'm just gonna go off and make the shit I want to make. Yeah, and like we didn't not do that with the first record. Like I still love what we made. I made stuff that challenged the threshold of where I was comfortable in pop music. The joy of everything is is that you can't do it wrong. Like with art. Like, people love to be like, they got it wrong. You can't get anything wrong. It's art, for fuck's sake. It's yeah. for interpretation. It feels like everyone right now is, like, chasing Spotify, chasing the algorithm, and just, like, uh, being what people want them to be or committing to an aesthetic that is, like, cool at the moment. Like, grime is a thing. Like, ultimately, no one cares about rock bands. What do I care about? What do I love? I'm like, okay, so I like Tarantino movies, and I like heavy rock. So what am I going to make? <laughs> it's Nancy Sinatra meets Nirvana and it always has been. But fuck, this album is like super heavy and it feels good. It feels good to be like, fuck you guys. Fuck everyone. Fuck Spotify. Like, fuck the algorithm. Like, do you know what? We're going to make the least cool thing that you can possibly make and make it cool. That, that's how it feels. And to be black honey, it's like... Be the outsider and own it. Like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be true to myself. If I wasn't owning that like outsiderness right now. That's true, for sure. And you sort of surround yourself with people like you're pretty tight with the raw blood guys, right? I feel like they are unapologetically a rock band, and they're just like whether it's cool, whether it's not cool, we're just gonna fucking do it. And like, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. So the other thing about this room, which is worth noting, is that it's incredibly green. There are so many beautiful, beautiful plants in here. A beautiful aroma of flowers. What is that? A hydrangea? Yeah! I, I mean, I would describe that as a bluebell, but I'm not 
the best at knowing maybe it's a hydrangea you if you're not very good at knowing what they are you're very good at tending to them because these guys are green as fuck well tell you what i'm not a hydrangea gal but i'm like i'm your i'm your cactus palm tree bitch there is one cactus in this room oh yeah he's an odd looking fellow (laughs) what's his story so this cactus that we're looking at is a Mexican fence post cactus. Ooh, boom. Dropping the names. At least I hope it is. Maybe I Googled the wrong name. Nobody uh, will know. That's no. the <laughs> Please don't put a picture up. They'll be like, um, excuse me, that's not the... Uh, excuse tro- me. So all the plant trolls out there that are coming for me. <laughs> I think it's a Mexican fence post cactus. Um, I love this cactus so much because it's like, I mean, hip height, would you say? Yes. He's very skinny. Maybe like three to four fingers thick. He looks like he's had a gastric band because in the middle he is so very skinny. Um, I mean, not that this is what a gastric band does to a human, but then he sort of, he really fills out above and below. Yeah, but I think the point I'm missing is where his gastric band has potentially been. He's also like got some really raw scar tissue it's an uncomfortable band yeah <laughs> basically it's a really ugly cactus this cactus is like ugly as it gets he's got a big cut on one side and then has managed somehow to like build a new arm we came home one day and we're like he's oh, growing a flower oh my god it's so exciting and then the flower turned out to be like a whole new arm that he's grown on his most dead section he was like I have lived my life. I am wearing my scars. You thought I was dead. You tried to kill me. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Like Kanye. Like, is that Kanye? Kanye Kanye the cactus. Like, this cactus for me is like a symbol of like, you go through shit and the shit that you go through, you absolutely carry on living. But you wear that scar. Like, he will never heal that scar. He's like deliberately showing us it. It's a message to us. People, like, come around and they're like, what the hell has happened to that cactus? Like, don't you dare talk about it like that. Don't you dare. How dare you? It's so good. Um, I think... I'm not even going to wrap up and, like, that can just be the end of the podcast. Yeah, that'll be good. Thanks for listening and thanks to Izzy for her time. It's always great to chat to her. She's just so open and easy to talk to. Cheers to her mum also for picking me up from the station. Black Honey have new music coming out this year, so check out their stuff online and keep an eye on their socials for more news on that. Production support for this podcast was by James John Deacon, and Izzy also wrote the theme tune for this and future episodes, so if it gets stuck in your head, you can blame her. If you enjoyed this episode, like and subscribe wherever you get your pods. Listener.